The lesson is love. The lesson is la 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 love. The lesson is love. And even as I say this, I will say I'm failing miserably at this lesson, but how might I take as good a care of myself as I took care of Lily? Mm. How might I give myself as much grace as I gave her? The lesson is la 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 love. The lesson is love. Welcome to the Lesson is Love podcast, where my guests are creative, inspiring change makers. I see these conversations as a brave practice of learning out loud and relating to all beings as beloved kin. Every time a person witnesses another with empathy, we shape our species a little bit closer to the best case scenario, universal fluency in life's most nourishing skill, unconditional love. I'm Grisha Stewart, best known for developing behavior adjustment training, BAT, which gives dogs with trauma or neglect histories an opportunity to safely open to connection. I'm also the founder of the Grisha Stewart Academy, a collaborative online dog school. Our global experts teach professional dog trainers and the curious public how to nurture healthy community with dogs. As an embodied human, I'm also a dog mom, wife, daughter, widow, stepmother, aunt, friend, musician, and always, always a student. Hey everybody, Diane here. I just wanted to jump on and introduce our guest for this episode, Lisa Moreno. She is a systems-focused community activist currently working as a behavioral health strategic planner in Colorado, and she is also a good friend of Grisha's. In this episode, we explore the affirmations we need to hear through the lens of those we love, learn about systems work for political change in the different cultures systems have in different cities, We talk about how belonging and community responsibility are key for collective and individual practices of regulating, and we discuss how making the choice to surrender a dog can sometimes be the most compassionate choice for both dog and human. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome, Lisa. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for being here to chat with us. Total treat. Total treat to get to spend some time with you. Yeah. So I have a question just to start us off. What brought you joy today? I made pozole last night. So I had pozole for breakfast. That was exciting. What is that? Pozole? You spent too much time in the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> it is a stew <laughs> with hominy and it can be made with pork or chicken and then there's different chilies that you put in it based on what sort of sauce you want, whether it's red or green. Or There's a whole lot about pozole that I don't know, but it's all like New Mexico, Navajo Nation, Borderlands, Mexico food. Got it. And I'm sure I could do it without also, the meat. Right. Okay. Uh, well, you know, I think they would all say no, but I'm sure. Well, so maybe that's, <laughs> maybe that's why that's not in my vocabulary. <laughs> it's not a food. And then I had a nice walk with this little dog that I'm dog sitting this week. Little corgi poo doll mix. Mm-hmm. What did you like about the walk? That it didn't hurt my body and that I wasn't worried about anything. And I could choose 
to do a little training, but because he was so small, if he was out in front, it didn't really matter. (laughs) (laughs) You know, history of having dogs with reactivity or larger dogs, like it's similar. Like when I walk dogs that are just like, Oh, this dog doesn't really have a problem. Like it's just easy. (laughs) Like it's a sort of whole lightening of the being like to not have to be concerned. Yeah. Which is a place that my neurology is not used to being. Yeah. I mean, just as dogs learn, right. How to be in the world with their reactivity, we then learn to respond to it. One of the things that I've been working on coaching people nowadays is it's sort of this really deliberate calming of the neurology. So it's sort of contagious to the dog. So when we're calmer, that they're calmer. But also just if they're physically smaller, that's certainly a nice perk. It makes it a lot easier to handle. You know, for your listeners, they don't know yet that mm-hmm. we met ages ago in Alaska because I had a fearful and reactive dog. And your bat training made a huge difference for my Pyrenees Poodle Mix, Lily. And I remember telling you, oh, I need someone to walk behind me and yank on the leash so that I always have a loose leash, like somehow to throw treats at me when I have a loose leash and make me be aware of that because I was so tense all the time because of her being a large dog and reactive. I didn't know how to relax with her. And then my tension was just going through the leash to her. But so I'm glad to hear that that's what you're doing now, because I think that, you know, as someone who's been trained by reactive dogs, it's really hard to learn to just relax with dogs that don't have those kinds of issues. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a whole getting into a different gear. So I remember when we first worked with Lily, basically like she wouldn't eat treats in public. There was this, I remember there's this epiphany moment when, oh my God, she's eating. Like she's interested in food right now. And seeing her change over the years was definitely nourishing and making your life easier and easier as life went on. It's not the same as a dog who's kind of fully in their grounded space, but it was nice to see her change over time. And you did a lot of great work with her. Yeah, she did it. She did it. Yeah. She was up for it. Yeah. And if I hadn't met you, I don't know where I would have been. Mm, isolated. <laughs> but isolated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And every dog that I've worked with has taught me something. And Lily was the chance to sort of learn more about the frustrated greeting kind of dog the one that's like I just really want to be over there and so I just wanted to say thank you for allowing me to be in your life with that and that that also then contributed to my understanding for my being my little dog being and to be able to meet his needs a little bit better as well so thank you thank you yeah Um, and my heart is full right now and a little bit sad because I'm thinking about Lily and the you know, she's, she's passed and peanut has passed the dog who kind of started bat in the first place. And I guess I want to ask you like what practices have been helpful in your processing of grief for Lily? I think it's been complicated because she passed in the middle of the pandemic and the job I had during the pandemic was to respond to the needs of people 
who really had big needs because it wasn't just the pandemic. We had wildfires and a mass shooting and I was a funder. So I had to find a way to respond to all of those things. And I honestly didn't have and haven't had the space to fully grieve her. Mm. But things that helped caring for other people's dogs that I didn't have to commit to, maybe it just helped me like fill the space. So I didn't feel it so much, but I am definitely on several people's dog sitting lists. (laughs) And then just learning again, what I might want to do with myself without a dog. Like how might I, even as I say this, I will say I'm failing miserably at this lesson, but how might I take as good a care of myself as I took care of Lily? Mm. How might I give myself as much grace as I gave her? Taking a moment to breathe that in. Mm. Lily were to say something to you about your life to sort of give you permission to do something or to like, to release something to to care best for yourself and to give yourself that grace, what would it be? I don't know. I mean, she was a keen observer of me. So I think there were things that she knew about me that I didn't even know that she knew. Sort of like you talking about the moment when she took treats in public. Like that wasn't the thing in that phase of time that I was paying more attention to. That's just what you were trained to see, right? Like. But I don't know what she would most see. I think, I think she might say maybe some permission to question myself less, to trust myself more and my instincts more in the spaces in which I work. Mm. And she would probably also say, get outside more. Get outside more. (laughs) So an instinct to find where the joy is, where the spark is, or like instinct about what? Like I generally do not go around believing that I know more than other people or that I am smarter than other people. And I think that she would say that I'm wrong. That you've worked your tail end off to learn. (laughs) And that I just am and I need to trust my gut because Mm. the things that I have to say need to be said and the Mm. things that I bring to the table need to be shared and I they won't arrive if I don't bring them and and to not shrink I guess just Mm. to trust right to help amplify that still small voice that like hey like this is important and I see this and sort of bringing it that your perspective really matters I think that moving across systems, whether it's nonprofits or local government or national coalitions or whatever, some systems are easier than other systems. And knowing why some systems are harder, I may never know why some systems are harder. I think coming back to Colorado has been really different. It's really different than living in Alaska. And the systems in which I'm working here are really different in ways that I haven't really had words for. Like I can't point at the things and go, oh, that's that. I just point at the thing and I go, that's weird. What is that? 
I don't know what that is. And that it's scary because I don't know what it is. You know, therapists always ask you that question where they go, I know you don't know, but if you did, what would it be? Mm. <laughs> They're like, okay, I don't know because I don't want to say. And if I did, what might it be? Like, I wonder if in Colorado, the systems are more closed, that the systems are more white supremacy bounded. Mm-hmm. In ways that people don't even know. And this is not to say that I think that the people around me are racist or white supremacists or anything like that. That's not what I'm saying. I think they are all really wonderful people who, if they thought the systems they were working in or in charge of were hurting people, they would poke their eyes out with sharp pencils. Right. They don't know that the floor that they're walking on that there is room for change in the fundamental beliefs of the system. Or they are aware of it and they're trying to make the change, but I'm not aware of how hard they're working for the change. I'm just facing this thing that's really weird, right? Mm. Right. How do I assess the system, see what is, explore it with others in a productive way? Because I think that I have a role for comment in me that says, I'm not sure it's even okay to say that this might be what I think it is. And, you know, it may not be what it is. It could be something else. Mm -hmm. There are other things that can look like that that aren't that. But it is just so really different from D.C. and it's really different from Alaska. And I'm sure there's very, you know, like a really broad spectrum of difference in systems. I don't know. It's just fascinating to me. And it's hard. And so I think going back to Lily of what should we, what would she tell me? I think she would just say that I need to just trust that I am, I've been brought in because of the gifts that I bring and that I need to trust to bring the gifts. And if it's too much and I get fired and booted out, like, you know, that's always a risk in a system. You'll get booted out somehow. Okay. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. And that I just need to, you know, not worry about it yeah. and flow more with it, with mm-hmm. the trust and the risk. And and I don't know how to be more, I guess, gracious about it all. Have more grace for me, for them, for this history mm-hmm. from this place. That's different. I mean, you know, racism, white supremacy, it's everywhere, but somehow it's just really different here. Mm-hmm. Maybe, and I'll float this and let me know if if it doesn't resonate, but almost like trust in the capacity of it to make an impact, whether or not it's too much and they can't handle you staying in the system, trust that their inherent goodness that wants to have a system that's fair and kind and equitable, like that there are people who can receive that. Trust and that's where they put, that there are people that matter and are um, leaders who very much want to go to that space. Right. That is what they want the system to be. I and think that they the can't see what you with, see. And it's just, you well, get to right. Share. I mean, I think the problem <laughs> with systems are that the longer we're in them, the more it's the air we breathe in, and it's harder. It's harder to see. Like, I think that the longer I stay in most systems, it's hard for, harder for me to see things more clearly, right? There's a leadership model that I will not be able to pull up the name of where it like identifies different people's leadership styles. And I think I'm one of those people that alerts to problems 
And so I probably see this more clearly at the moment than others might. Let me reframe that. I don't think I see it more clearly. I think I feel it more pointedly than others might. Mm -hmm. There are others who will look at it and go, oh, that's that, right? Because they have more experience in different places where this is normal. Like I see it and they know what it is. And I see it and I go, what the hell? That feels so weird. What is that? Right. And then I go, hey, you guys, that's weird. And they're like, that's not weird. That's something's weird here. (laughs) (laughs) That's just normal. What are you talking about? (laughs) Well, it's like, you know, to put it back to the animal thing, right? It's like, you know, there's a flock of sheep, right? And you're the Pyrenees in this case, right? Ish. I mean, you're many things, but, you know, that's the job of this one being that's there to be like, wait, I see that there's something coming that is also not a sheep. Like, we need to worry about this, right? So if the Pyrenees was like, well, none of these sheep are worried. So maybe I just be quiet. So to complicate the analogy even more, I mean, like Lily, I'm sort of a Pyrenees poodle because my you know, my father's family was, they're Mexican, but my mother's family was Anglo. And so, you know, I have all these different mixed messages about these and assimilation into the system. And so my view of these things would be really different from someone, you know, a Black person coming from DC or a Chicano person coming from the borderlands or a strong urban Latino community. So I think that that's part of what it makes it difficult for me to sort it all out. Like I'm sort of Pyrenees poodle going, Pyrenees going, ah, that's not sheep. And poodle's like, nobody's fluffy like me. You know, it's just (laughs) maybe that's the place in me where it's less clear. I can alert to it, but I don't have that clarity about it. Yeah. So articulating it can be really difficult. Like I can look at it and go, boy, I noticed that finding a job in Colorado is much harder than finding a job in Alaska or DC. Like in DC, you show up, you can meet a total stranger and they'll say, well, what kind of job are you looking for? And they'll say, you tell them what you're looking for. And they'll go, here are 25 of my friends. You go talk to them. They don't have to know anything about you except that you need help to do something. And they have some link to that. And then in Alaska, it's sort of the same thing because in DC, the currency is who you know. And so you share that currency. In Alaska, there's just not enough people. So they're like, hey, there's a million jobs here. Let's help you find one. And, you know, the culture is much more like everybody relies on each other to survive. So it's just more open in both of those places. But here, someone really has to observe you in a professional role before they're going to recommend. It's very hard to get that sort of a networking thing going where someone says, yeah, I hear my top five friends go talk to these people. They're all whatever. Here's the best social workers I know, or here are the best lobbyists I know. And that's really interesting to me, but it means that it's harder to get into spaces, right? And it takes a sort of imprimatur from somebody to get you into spaces. So that was the first thing I noticed that was different about Colorado. Mm -hmm. And I want to mention that to the listeners that Diane is also here in the conversation. And so Diane, if you have anything to jump in with, feel free as well. So it's not a sudden surprise to people that there's a third voice. <laughs> Howdy listeners. <laughs> well, yes, I do have a question for Lisa. Did you go to Colorado with any connections like pre-established or did you go there just like don't know anyone, 
Well, so my family is from Colorado, three generations on one side and five on the other. So I had family. So my the extended family is all here. So I had family. And then we lived in Colorado until I was nine. My dad was in the military. So even as we moved around, we always came back. It was our base. And then I worked for this amazing member of Congress who died very recently, Pat Schroeder. And she represented the city and county of Denver for 26 years. And I worked for her for seven and a half years in D.C. So I had a lot of professional connections. So I definitely worked, you know, the network in a way that I would have done it in D.C. But this is the second time I've come back. And it was a little bit easier this time, but it still is nothing like the other two places that I've spent a lot of time, D.C. or Alaska. It's just different. Mm-hmm. So what do you wish that people assumed about you just in general, but maybe also in terms of when they're looking at you and deciding, like, do I introduce you to my network or do I find all these people? That's an interesting question. I guess I can't even answer that in terms of myself because it's about relationships. It's not about me per se. It's about how do we take our resources and collectively help others in the community because Mm -hmm. the community needs all these people right community needs more diversity and different people and then people need the entree so why would not everyone just like here here you go so it isn't really about what they think of me because I don't think it is about me I will say where I do think it is about me is where people say well what's your ideal job what is it you're looking for and I suck at answering the question. I think I was ruined by my first job. It's like peaking in kindergarten because it was so it's good. So big. That I really, really wanted to find that again. And it just is a rare, rare, rare thing. That amazing member of Congress. It was an amazing team to be a part of. And it's really impossible to replicate. And I see you light up when you talk about that. And so what's the, like the amazing, what was it? What can was you unpack it? amazing for me? Yeah. Yeah. She was a member of Congress. She was first selected in 1972, Representative Pat Schroeder. And she was, you know, a oddball candidate that no one thought would, was going to run or would win. And they ran this super grassroots campaign on a shoestring. They have one of their original campaign posters and she won on a landslide. And then every year for her entire career, representing the district for 26 years, she always won with over 60% every two years, which is when the elections were for that seat. And she ran scared every single election. So she was always out campaigning and taking it very seriously. But she was a culture cracker. She was hilarious. She used her humor. She could see the big picture and then figure out what most needed to change. And then she would turn it over to her staff to figure it out. And we were trusted with that mission profoundly. So I was hired. I was barely 22 years old, handed a portfolio of issues. And told I could do anything I wanted on those issues to move the ball forward. And the only time I had to ask was if she physically had to show up. So she was such an icon. We all knew 
what it was she wanted. And she had an amazing chief of staff. And we cracked cultures and changed humongous things. I got to work with a small team of people from other offices, and we wrote the first Violence Against Women Act and passed it in the House. Now, President Biden says that he did it, and he didn't. It started in the House. It was the women that introduced the bill, and then we spent time looking for a Senate sponsor, and we're hoping for a woman, and then he took it. We didn't even make it out of whole cloth. This is the way the Capitol Hill works. It had come out of the Select Committee of Children, Youth, and Families, and the staff there had done quite a bit of work with it under the leadership of George Miller from California. So we got a bill that was, you know, probably 75 to 80% done. That's huge. What felt alive in me as I listened to that was, you know, Lily has advice for you, but maybe Pat has, is it Pat Schroeder? Is that the right name? Mm-hmm. Maybe she has advice for you too at this juncture. So what would she say about the things that Lily also commented on? I don't think she would have had advice. She was never, Mm. never an Mm. advice giver. (laughs) She probably would have just laughed at me and moved on. (laughs) Like figure it out. (laughs) But when I think about, you know, the ideal thing, it's like, culture it's a it's the team and the quality of the team it's the audacity of the mission and the authority to live up to that audacity who do you think gave her permission to be audacious oh god her parents i mean she learned at a very young age i'm feeling like within you right is this part of you that's sort of like I give you permission to be audacious, right? <laughs> and then there's this other part that's like, but no, that's not allowed. Like, does that <laughs> does that ring true? Yeah, it's like, I, I'm not exactly sure that giving me permission, I don't know if it's permission. Like, she had a seat. She had a position. And the position came with the possibility to make major change. And she sponsored her team into that authority. She filled the space of that possibility. She took every milliliter of volume in the possibility and sponsored her team into the authority that came with her role. And I think that's really rare. I have a friend who just retired after 37, 35, 37 years working for Senator Leahy, and he wrote an article for a Vermont paper about his experience working for Leahy. And he describes it somewhat the same way. There there were just some of those members of Congress, probably on both sides of the aisle, who basically handed their staff a piece of their authority and said, dream it up, make it so. I got your back. That's really beautiful to hear. Because I feel like at least I have this perception that within these systems and institution that's the exact opposite of how it's normalized to move and that's like holistically not what they want is for power to be redistributed in that way and to be granted to people who don't have as much legitimized authority 
So that's really amazing to hear that you've had that experience of being given, as you said, like a a piece of that authority to do the dreaming and then do the dream and make the dream with the power that you had. That's really cool. It was amazing. And it was, you know, it was the learning of who's in this space already and who's actually doing the work and how do we amplify what they're doing? Where can we take that model and make it bigger? How can we, you know, who in other systems, like I did a lot of work with the military, who in those systems were being victimized and how do we support and speak for the victims and how do we connect those people so there are new systems that they can create. And there were women officers who were hitting the glass ceiling and wanted new opportunities. So how could we work with them to amplify their voices and their impact? And it was big. In terms of amplifying voices, there are things that you know that I don't know, that listeners don't know, and you're a systemic thinker. What are some things that you wish were part of the collective consciousness right now? Mm-hmm. I know that's a really broad, big question, but... When you okay. said that really was the collective. So right now I'm doing a lot of work around behavioral health at the systems level, but more local, so not at a federal level. And we're looking at how do we create a strategic plan for the entire community, behavioral health. And then how within that do we improve access to services for the people who are left out of access? And where I live, it's about 80% white. And so all the services really are in English and the providers are more than 80% white and in some service areas, I don't mean like service types, there literally is only services available in English. And I think the thing that I've been thinking about a lot is how different cultures regulate and learn to regulate themselves. And then this thought like spins back to me again, and where do I sit between cultures and community and in community and not a part of community? And then it spins back to dogs too. But, you know, there are cultures with whom the community is what helps regulate. And if you are not connected to community, how could you be expected to regulate? Mm. And then there are, for example, in the culture of recovery, some of the main tenets that recovery-oriented systems promote is belonging and purpose. And it isn't just about people in recovery belonging to people in recovery, but people in recovery belonging to the greater the rest of the community. Yes. So I wish that people thought more about that and maybe felt a little bit more responsible to each other. Even and perhaps especially for people we don't know. And I think that goes sort of internally and externally. Like there's sort of, if we think of like there are different parts of ourselves and we sort of think of the individual as a small sort of representation of the larger community. 
And so we're responsible to all of those parts of ourselves. And we're also part of this greater whole that we are responsible for all of the people. Like we're part of one nervous system. When one part is dysregulated, we are all dysregulated. I'm going to say yes. And I think that for collective cultures, they wouldn't buy the part about you're responsible for your own pieces. Hmm. I mean, I think it's more complicated than that. And that the individual isn't primary. Community is primary. Right, right. Thank you for pointing out that difference. And I'll also do an and (laughs) that to me, it's like the, I have a consciousness that's sort of a conduit to like these aspects of myself that if I suppress parts of myself, then that ultimately is harmful to to the way I can express in community. I don't know if that matches. <laughs> it makes total sense to me. I just want to hold the space that it may not be the perspective of someone who actually comes from and is grounded in a collective culture. Yeah, got it. I, yeah, I'm but just trying to find the bridge to, as, you to, know, to understand. Yeah. yeah, but we may not, we may not be able to bridge it. And hold space for that. Like a personal belief is sort of like, I want to be able to understand or at the, at the very least appreciate the perspectives that every culture, every being can bring. I say things sort of as like, oh, here, this is the truth. But like, I'm saying it as a like, is it this? Like, is this a bridge? Is this, does this resonate? So thank you for pointing out that I still haven't found it. <laughs> I don't know that that I have it right either. I don't know that I have found the bridge at all. Like you, my family assimilated and like married into the Anglo world. So I also am in the same place that you are and I can see it. I don't know that I can articulate it. And I certainly am not grounded enough in it. The best I can do is name it. And to tie it back to one of the roots of this podcast is sort of like I can understand other species in a way right? But I will never know what it's like to be a dog. I can see like, okay, this leads to this, like, oh, and that's helpful for my worldview. It can broaden me, but I will never see the world as Zuki does or as Joey does. But by trying, at least I can get myself out of the way of their thrival yeah, and and be in community in the ways that I can with other species or other cultures or other members of my own family. Like we're all different (laughs) as well. We all see the world uniquely. I think, well, I guess I want to say first that I think that what you do really well is using your space to elevate others. And I think that when you, you know, as you talk about empowerment of animals and even that perspective that you just articulated, like you are giving space to elevate a different perspective on how people are in relationship with animals. And that's a bridge that's your bridge right like so then maybe down the line like there's a podcast on what really is a collective approach to these to the universe right and bring on the folks that live in that space that are open to the conversation we will i wanted to swing back to the animals so i just surrendered my very large puppy i couldn't help him regulate and i certainly couldn't do it alone. It was for me such a huge task that I just needed someone that I could tag out and say, okay, it's your turn. (laughs) And because I'm by myself, I'm single, 
there wasn't anybody I could do that with. And he was an arousal biter. And he spent the first two months biting the heck out of me. And I had these moments where I thought, well, if I just do a holding piece or if I just do, you know, like tell him no, or, you know, I'm trying to wrestle a large breed puppy and I did it once and thought, this is folly. <laughs> a, it's not <laughs> going to work. This is not a good plan. <laughs> we are not going to do this physically. Yeah. <laughs> Let's look at this again. <laughs> and I thought, oh, right. You know, he's a baby. He doesn't know what he's doing. This is not aggression. It doesn't feel like aggression. My job is to help him regulate. So then we did warning words and we did timeouts and he jumped over baby gates to try and get me instead of staying in timeout. And I would march into the bathroom for a timeout with my arm literally in his mouth. Oh, my arms were so bruised and my hands were swollen. This went on for two months and... And then it started getting better, but I just didn't have any oomph left because yeah. I didn't have the community and I didn't have any reinforcements. And I realized that I just couldn't be the house he needed. And the other piece was about the empowerment. Like I have this thing in me where if I'm going to take him to a dog park, I want to know he's going to come back and I'm not going to be chasing after him across acres. Right, right. right. And I, he wouldn't come back. <laughs> And that play is what he needed more than anything else. And so we were in this just horrible catch 22 of me being afraid to take him and him needing that. And I didn't have enough friends with young dogs to tire him out, Mm. which goes back to community again. Right. Yeah. Community is like, there are so many things that at least sort of, white Western culture has been taught to do individually or at the nuclear family level that it's, we're not meant to do this alone. Like we're not meant to grieve alone that can be held by community to be able to tap into that deepest space of dysregulation or of sadness or anger or fear. And the same for a dog, right? Having just one person, right? It's like, then you get dysregulated and then it's like, whoa. And then you're kind of both seesawing and I'm recognizing in me, like I wish as your dear friend that I had flown to Colorado to, to, to help with that. And like, I give you full permission to call me more, right? So like, I think I, I have just like the smallest notion that that was going on. So please like, feel free to reach out because I- Well, I, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I think that I had to choose me. Yeah. And um, I hadn't slept through the night for two months. I was getting sick. I've been sick now for five weeks. I have a job that's on a deadline that matters a lot to me and to the community. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't give him what he needed given those constraints. And I had to choose me. And I think if I hadn't gotten sick, I would have kept plotting ahead. He was a large breed dog at two. He might've grown up like it would have been a long haul. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that there's some notion that, you know, we have to continue no matter what. And I'm grateful that you have the insight, right. To look at yourself and say, this system 
is not healthy for the two of us. Like rehoming is it's totally an option. It just is like, it's not your biological child. And even then, right, if there would be a system in which that being could thrive more, then by all means, right? It was a learning edge for me, for sure. Yeah. To be able to, again, going back to being able to see what it is and name it. It was a real learning edge for me to not just say, I took on this responsibility and I will see it through. And I know he will be an amazing dog. And I still know that. But I did just have to look at it and say, he has so much potential and I, I'm i going to screw him up. Mm-hmm. That became a real fear. And he will be so cool if, if someone doesn't. <laughs> right. right. Well, and you got your ego out of the way. Right? It didn't have to be about, I will make this dog the, the amazing dog that he can be. I have to be the best home for this dog. It doesn't have to be just you. So. Well, my ego did take a hit though, because yeah. he went off to a foster home on a very large farm with three other dogs, two of which were large breed and really amazing woman who's running all of this. Her husband travels a lot, so she's there by herself a lot. And she's got two small children. And so she handed the leash to her six-year-old. <laughs> and I was like, I'm not as good a handler as I thought I was. Got it. So the six-year-old was fine. Yeah, I've had no problem. He's (laughs) Well, so the things you're describing, right? So large farm, exercise, lots of other, like two other dogs to sort of wear out the dog. I mean, we don't have to be the best system for all. Like you don't have to be the best home for all dogs. You just have to be the best home for the dog that you're with. So, so, you know, when the time comes that you decide to get your next permanent dog, then, you know, maybe smaller. Smaller. (laughs) Eats a little less. (laughs) It has to be the size that I can pick it up and huck it in the car. (laughs) Maybe set it gently. Yes. Yeah. You got this. You are a caring, loving, well-educated dog caregiver. So I'm sure that the next dog that you have, that's your permanent dog, will be super happy to have you. Well, I do trust that this rescue will find him the right home because they definitely found him the right foster home and they did it quite quickly. But I did run into something where I realized that there is a bias against people who surrender dogs. and. They posted the little blurb on him on their website, and I was I felt maligned by it. <laughs> I felt very insulted by what they wrote, and I thought, now this is complicated because I also gave them quite a donation, and now I'm like, but I'm a donor now too. Like this is a again, we're back to the collective, right? We are all connected here. We have to check the biases because I don't actually- feel as good about the donation as I did when I gave it. Mm. This is one of the main reasons that I have this podcast is that dog people have a lot of empathy for dogs and there is a lack of empathy toward people in this industry. 
you know, the people that we work with, the clients we work with, the other trainers in the industry who might be making different choices. And yes, I have biases as well, but I recognize that people do the best that they can in the situation that they're in. And yes, there are adopters who are just like, la la la, adoption is for, you know, like the dog is the least important thing in their system and they're sort of throw away. And, and that's not the reason that you surrendered this dog. Like it wasn't done on a whim. It wasn't done because dogs are not important to you, but actually the contrary, that the well-being of this individual dog was very important to you. And of course your own well-being, which is so important. Like it matters. Yeah. 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 And he went off with a lot of skills and in very good shape and with a lot of expensive stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sorry that that happened to you. I'm going to ride in the water. Well, we've been on kind of a lot of deeper, challenging things. And I want to circle back to something that's important as well is this concept of community, which is not not deep. It is deep as well in terms of building community. So like things that for me build community is community singing. So last night we went to a, a thing that was 40 people and just really be just resonating together and just having that experience of ceremony and singing and being like just tuning in sort of vibrationally right in our bodies and in our vocal cords. That's one thing that builds community for me. What sort of things would you want more of? So what sort of more community building things do you see as nourishing? I'm glad you asked the, the health of the way. whole system or yourself. Well, I'm glad you asked the question that way because I haven't been successful coming out of the pandemic and reestablishing those connections. Like I still feel very isolated. And I think I've always had community in work and now I'm working from home. So it's not good for me, I think, in the long run. I always thought, oh, this would be great forever. And I don't know that it is great for me forever. Things that I would like more of. I would like more dance in my life. I have a hiking group. I really like where we go and what we do. It's, I need more of it. And I need more of it with different types of people. I had this idea in the before times that I was going to start this super inclusive bike club. And you could wear whatever you want and bring any bike and we were going to bike to snacks. Mm-hmm. And I think that I still might do that. <laughs> you know, you're not the only that one that's, that's feeling isolated after the pandemic. So there might be, that would be so much you fun. Could end up at Mexican popsicles or like ride up to the mountain town to the best, you know, little country store, that kind of thing. I have actually been interested in singing. I don't think I'm at the level of, uh, I would be at a level of group singing out of the box. I'm on a couple of boards and that definitely helps. I would like more volunteering that maybe is more hands-on. Like I could get some time swinging a hammer or something. Mm, Something like that. Like Habitat for Humanity kind of. Yeah. More outside time for sure. Outside time with people. My need for time around a campfire is probably way huge and empty. Well, if you happen to have time to come up to Oregon, we have a fire right here. Okay. 
<laughs> so I just had an idea that we could try. I haven't tried this before on Zoom. And I know singing doesn't work on Zoom, but I'm wondering if humming would work. So if you th- you two would hum with me, and I'm just going to hum like a note. And if you feel like changing it, and then we can both listen and kind of harmonize as well. But would you be up for that? Sure. All right, here we go. I realized because Zoom kind of blocks, like if I'm singing, then there's no sound coming out of you guys. And so I made sure to hum like as I realized that I was the only one I could hear, then I stopped for a second. So your sound could sort of reach me. And then it felt much better to me to like, then I could really kind of resonate together. Yeah. How did that feel? I, I felt a neurological change. Like I felt a shift. Yay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So as I, age i and become an elder my young elder at this point but still an elder i become more and more aware of the the ways that i can contribute to the greater system to bring harmony and to to nourish the well-being of of all beings in this system that we are in on this planet and that's anywhere from the non-human animals to the plants to fellow humans and the way that i do it is through the podcast through the dog academy and through like being at the grocery store and and asking people questions that bring them out of their the role that they're playing in that moment as a shopper or as a checker or whatever we are and to sort of meet them as a human And so those are ways that I contribute to this system. And what are the ways that you see yourself contributing to the well-being of the whole? Not to be that person that says I gave up the office, but I feel like my professional contribution has always been focused on that. And if it wasn't, I wasn't up for it. I wish I was more of an entrepreneur who had a different focus professionally at times and (laughs) like I could just be a jewelry designer (laughs) or something like that but it never was that for me if work isn't about making people's lives better or the world better I'm not up for it I think that's a good spot to leave thank you Lisa for being part of this thank you for all of the contributions that you've made in your nonprofit work and your early political stuff and all of the many things that you do later in your life as we change and grow. And thank you for being here. And thank you for being my friend. Thank you, Grisha. The lesson is love. The lesson is la 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 love. The lesson is love. This work of universal love takes all of us. So if you think this podcast might inspire someone you know, please share it with them. 
The Lesson is Love is a project of the Grisha Stewart Academy and Empowered Animals, produced by the thoughtful Diane Redding and me, Grisha Stewart. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever you are listening to it, and we have extra podcast perks at grishastewart.com love. Please check out my academy to learn more about thriving in community with dogs. May you be free from suffering. May you know you belong. May you live a life of meaning and purpose. And with every choice, may you turn toward love. The lesson is la 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 love. The lesson is love.